Welcome to Conversations on Eagle Mountain, an in-depth episodic podcast about The Tribe. For those unfamiliar with the show, The Tribe is a post-apocalyptic teen drama series about mysterious fires which kills off all the adults, leaving everyone under the age of 18 on their own to survive. There's no one out there, Jack. That's why you can't hear anything. Oh, don't be stupid. This radio can pick up stations from all over the world. That's what I mean. You remember those last few days? The virus was everywhere. It spread too fast. Nowhere was safe. Nowhere. Think about it, Jack. If there are any adults in the world, what would they do? There's no television, no internet. The radio would be the first thing they'd use. Just like you're doing. They can't all have gone. Not all of them. We've got to keep trying. Jack. We're on our own. A quick word of warning to any newcomers to the tribe. This podcast will contain spoilers. So if you've already seen the show, or you simply don't mind spoilers, then you're in the right place. Now, since there is simply far too much to cover in the opening episode, we're launching the podcast with a special edition. So let's get you some introductions. I'm Lance, your host, and joining me on the panel today is Hill, Sabine, Liz and Kata. Welcome, everyone. Hi. Hey. Hello, hello. Hey. So we're going to jump in by starting off with the episode summary to episode one. Episode one, screenplay was done by David Fox and it was directed by Wayne Terrell. When Amber and Dell find Chloe wandering the streets, they have her take them to her companions, Celine, Patsy, Paul and their dog, Bob. Meanwhile, Lex, Ryan and Zandra, lying low after a failed attempt to join the Locos, decide to pursue Amber's newly formed group to the mall. There they all find Jack, its self-proclaimed owner. Okay, so we're going to kick off the episode discussion by starting with the core concept of the show, which is, of course, the virus. So, so there's a lot to talk about here. Um, what, what are the panel's thoughts on the virus itself? Did you like the mystery that was seeded through the opening episode? Um, do you like they didn't quite tell you how it happened or why it happened? It just kind of happened and you've got these characters suddenly having to survive in it. Um, do you like that or do you think it should have been explained a bit more? Just kind of, what's your overall thoughts about like the mystery of the virus? Part of me really liked the mystery of it because in the first, actually the very first scenes of the intro, you instantly see someone with a biohazard sign in a lab so something's obviously wrong and then you go to the black van telling everyone to stay inside so yeah the virus instantly gives off that something went wrong vibe mm -hmm. you're you're instantly dropped into the world and much like the kids that you're seeing you don't have a concept of really what's fully going on which i thought was always an interesting choice because um, it makes you as much a part of the show as the characters. Yeah, when you look at it, you can clearly see that something went wrong that affected the adults, specifically. Because that's, that's what they show you in the first moments. Well, yeah, you know a little bit, but basically like the characters know that their parents are gone and they have to rebuild society. But as a viewer watching it, you know as well, too, something has happened to the adults, but you don't quite know 
what like you know it's a virus of some sort but you don't ever know who started it where it came from that point is conveyed very well now which made me want to keep watching in hopes of finding out what happened yeah the cool concept itself is just so kind of cool <laughs> i always thought yeah. when i was watching it originally like that kind of concept of kids being in the world without adults i think all growing up we all have that kind of moment where we kind of question our parents or kind of realize that they're not like perfect and mm -hmm. we realize that they make mistakes and then we try and kind of that turning point when you're growing up when you realize okay you can, you can accept the mistakes of your parents or you can kind of rebel against it and it's that kind of drive that kind of powers the show and i, I just thought it was really cool i always liked the uh the premise because i think it's most shows that are aimed at kids always dabble with the idea of parental authority not being important and not being there and it doesn't often make sense for the show parents are so uninvolved in the kids lives and the tribe just finds a way to take the parents out of the equation entirely and uh i i enjoyed seeing them go straight with that um i found it very easy to catch on to i understood right away what was going on at least enough to get what was happening. And it never bothered me that it remained a mystery since the show was never about the virus itself. So um, I did, it never bothered me that we didn't really get straight answers because at the end of the day, what caused the virus never mattered. It was always mm -hmm. gonna be something that us adults destroyed ourselves with and are our kids gonna follow the same pattern and how hard it is to actually figure out the right way to live. It's so easy to look at our parents and say, well, I'm not gonna make the mistakes you make. And as our kids learn the hard way, it's not that simple to just decide how to live society, how to get everyone on board with the right path, because that's their main struggle through all five seasons, is getting everyone on board with the best way to move forward. And uh, so yeah, I think they did a really great job with that setup. Um, the tribe, I was actually thinking about this while you were talking. Uh, the tribe gave a voice to like a very vulnerable population in children, which I thought was always interesting. Like so much we look at our parents and we're like, this is the way it's supposed to be. But in the world of the tribe, there are no adults. And so, you know, it gives power back to kids to say, hey, you can change the world sort of thing. And I always thought that was really powerful as someone who grew up watching the show. Don't think there was a lot back then that really showed us a world without adults. There were only three movies I recall having already been aware of. No, I'm trying to think of the names and I'm like blanking, but there were a few. There's a couple of shows that are kind of similar, but obviously different. You had like, what's it called? The Odyssey. I don't know if anyone remembers that TV show. Yeah. It was about a kid who um, gets knocked out into a coma and he basically dreams up this world in his chromatic state where there's no adults. It's ruled all by kids. That's kind of a similar premise, but yeah, mm -hmm. not, nothing like a virus. But. And I think, Lance, you've probably seen the Spartacle Mysteries as well. You know what? I never fully watched it. I think I watched the trailer, but I've never seen that show. It was very, very similar, but it came later. Um, Jeremiah? Dear Dad. It's been 15 years since the big death wiped out everyone over the age of innocence. The end of your world 
the beginning of mine. I don't know if everyone remembers yeah, that sci-fi yeah. show. Um, and like we'll discuss this in another podcast, but like they there are some similarities you can tell from the tribe. I think it's just a popular uh trope in media, you know, especially in the the growing young adult teen market. Um, you know, you can even look at like hunger games and those are children in a world there are adults, but then they're being sent off to the death to fight in this like battle yeah you've just reminded me actually um something like goes back to like peter pan yeah like kids sort of in the world without adults us boys yeah it's just it's such a kind of i think it's a really good concept that people want to explore and i think for kids like it it's almost empowering like yeah and if you want to attract that audience it's kind of an easy way of going about it where you're like hey this is this world without adults where kids rule. You have to go. But what about you and Dad? It's too late for us, Trudy. You have to accept that. Save yourself. For your mother's sake. And mine. No. So Trudy's flashback. Um, obviously, it happens right after the opening credits. It's one of those scenes where I, I just think it could have been pushed a little bit later on into the episode, I think the intro does enough to set things up. And I think we could have opened with a different scene. Um, I don't know what you guys think. I was thinking about this the other day because there's an intro. I thought maybe it was just an introduction to the tribes because in that scene, Trudy is talking about to Bray about, you know, oh, what about the locos and what about this? But that actually is paralleled later in like three scenes later with Lex. And Ryan and all when they're like, hey, look, the roosters are here, locos. So, like, I get the place of it, but it also seems very, like, jarring almost and just mm -hmm. out of place. I can't help but wonder if it was put there to add to the confusion of how much we're supposed to understand about this world. Um, since season, since episode one does have a very experimental feel to it. It was obvious how different they wanted to bring this concept to the screen and, uh, you know, create as much mystery as possible so that you would be intrigued to see what happens next. And I do think what happens sometimes when people use that mystery box uh, method of storytelling is they can throw certain setups up there that may not play out properly or have the proper payoff or like you guys mentioned, just doesn't feel like that's the right place for it to even be. Mm -hmm. um, it succeeds in making you wonder what's going on and being confused, but it it's po that's probably why it doesn't feel like it belongs where it is. I, I actually think it was in the right place because by starting off with Trudy's dream of her parents and then saying she didn't want to go, she didn't want to leave them, it sets the premises for there being no more adults. And if you would have started with some kids in a police car, you would have wondered where the hell are their parents? That's true. I think you're just getting a lot of the same like visuals repeated. Yeah. yeah it's just, it's show don't tell. They decided to show what Trudy was talking about rather than her telling us, so. 
it should also show how much drama there is going on, not just with the black police car telling the, the people to stay inside, but also show that the parents are mean to be dead, that there is no way out for them, that the children have to go and knowing they would never see their parents again, that it was clear that all adults would die mm -hmm. and not survive. Yeah, because uh, I was thinking about this earlier, because um, like when I was thinking back, when I remember watching it, the scene that stood out for me the most was Chloe, when she's walking across these panning, deserted streets, clutching a teddy bear. That, to me, like says a lot without, without saying anything. <laughs> so, yeah. See, that would have been a better opening. Like, if we were just dropped into this world and having this little girl, like, especially that camera move whipping yeah. around, like, that tells us a lot, too without having to say anything like you bring up show don't tell and that's true to you pretty much with her parents telling us what's going on as well we're just seeing it a different way speaking of obviously vagueness and mysteries what's everyone's thoughts about the kind of illusion they set up with the show itself um by keeping the city a nameless city and obviously trying to americanize all the accents so that it wasn't like you couldn't actually spot that it was new zealand and new zealand accent well you could spot it but yeah they tried very <laughs> hard <laughs> to kind of minimize that so that you could kind of just get the overall feel that this virus was happening in any city around the world kind of near you um did you appreciate the effort that they went to kind of make that illusion real i loved it i thought it was a really great way to be universal especially in its message of what it's trying to tell uh, its audience that this is something that could happen anywhere and to anyone and um, as Hill had actually mentioned once that it makes it much easier for a young viewer to latch on to different characters um, because they aren't they aren't very specific in any way there is a yeah. genericness to them and I don't mean that in a derogatory <laughs> way at all um, it just <laughs> It makes them very universally easy to latch on to. And um, I also think, as you know, because I discovered the show as an adult. So I just found it quirky and very interesting. <laughs> um, I, I enjoyed that, that it was different than anything else I'd ever seen. So I think it works. I, I think when I watched it the first time, I didn't even realize that they were trying to hide where it was. It just. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't register as a specific location for me. I just always took it for face, like, this is a place called the city, and we live here, and this is what we all sound like. Like, I, hey, cool, this is where we're going with this. Like, all right. Honestly, I have never thought about a name or for the name of the city because it was always the city. Uh, that does bring up bring up a good point though, because um obviously in later series they start naming locations, so we have stuff like uh, Liberty City, Eagle Mountain, Hope Island. Um, obviously, it has to be done to obviously continue the lore and give a bit more backstory. But it does kind of break the illusion that they began with by having the city be named the city. Like with Liberty and stuff, I wonder if that just comes back to its kit. Like it's still not a like a concrete place it's not london england but it's this other like it's liberty like that's not on a map anywhere so i wonder if that was like a choice by the kids kind of like a like a character thing oh it certainly was like we need to yeah like we need to start having places like 
So now we have this outcrop called Liberty that we've I mean, named. It's called Liberty. It could not be more <laughs> obvious yeah. what it represents. You know, it's freedom from all the ways they live in the city. It's a completely different place. The kids have given it its own Wild West yeah. personality. And it's clearly not a city. It's just like a, a neighborhood. Yeah. And, you know, the kids have made it their thing. And, yeah, I mean, that is the, the problem with vagueness is as a storyteller and as you're trying to expand it, you start ha you have to start defining certain spaces. But even when they do, they still keep them very, very vague where certain yeah. things are. You very rarely get, you know, a definite line of how long it takes to get any place. You never see them walking on a highway, which would be the most logical route from one place to another. They're always in the woods and back roads and paths and you're like, how? that's not how you leave the city. <laughs> they, they, they visually keep it very vague about how you get from place to place. Oh, it takes you two days or a day in this very vague direction will take you here. There's nothing outside of the city except for these vague spots. <laughs> but even like walking on a highway, like if we're in survival mode, that would probably also be the worst possible place to walk. Just throwing that one. Like, if you were worried about, you know, the locos who are the only tribe we see with a car, like, they're going to take that highway and there's no cover. So, so I appreciated that they kind of kept low and in the woods and kept it kind of vague with that. What are the gangs doing here? Sunday afternoon drive. Is it Sunday? Who knows? Get down. been chasing us after all. Unless they're toying with us. Luckers do that. They'd love to catch you off guard. Actually leads us nicely into a conversation about um, transport because um, I quite like the the use of transport and what they included in the show. Um, everything from like skateboards and rollerblades and obviously you have the police car of the locos. I thought it was quite well done. I think to give them yeah those modes of transport we didn't ever saw any bicycles which i thought was always weird like we had the rollerblades and the skateboards that that but, was something for me that yeah. instantly gave it away for me that it wasn't in my country living here they're everywhere i mean on the one hand it will be quite difficult if you're trying to like you're trying to escape a you know rogue tribe and you're just riding a bicycle you can it was easy to get like true pulled off, pulled off of it but um the fact is that you never really, you never ever see a bicycle ever, like not no, once no. <laughs> in the show. This is a kind of weird, a weird omission to have. Forget where the guns are, where are the bicycle? Oh, we'll get to that, yeah. <laughs> I know, but just to say that, like, I've, just saying it right now, I don't think anyone's ever pointed it out. Like, no, we see people always talking about where is this, where is that, where are the bicycle? It is a strange thing not to have, yeah. Because even at that age, kids would know how to yeah. fix the tire of a bicycle. Well, even a tricycle. Yeah. Why didn't Brady have a tricycle? I, I think the only type of bicycle you see is way later on. I think there was a unicycle at some point. I think Tribe Circus didn't yeah. have unicycles. Yes, you're right. Ah, uh, yeah, there was one member, yeah. And Top Hat has a motorcycle too, towards the end. But I think that's about it. Um, I like how the use of transportation um, represents power. You know, uh, from the very yeah. start, our main characters are either on foot 
or rollerblades, speaking to Amber and Dal's resourcefulness. But the people they're running away from are in a car. Every time we have a more powerful tribe that's, you know, a threat to our heroes, they're usually in a car or a van or, you know, the technos yeah. decided to really bring it home and show up in a plane, you know. Um, <laughs> It's really a it's a great visual representation of how much how more much more powerful this threat is to have access to this sort of transportation. You know, your friends are being taken away in big trucks, you know, um, and most of the time our heroes are always on foot. Rarely. That's just how they have to get around no matter what. And so, yeah, I like that visual representation. And it instantly gives you a point with Lex in episode one yeah i was thinking that <laughs> you you see alex and ryan and sandra in sitting in the car trying to get the car to work so clearly they want to be like the big bad guys yeah that's a really good point point. and of course you know they can't get it to start because there's no gas like no matter what they do that car was not going to start for them i always found that a little bit weird because um like no other, no one else is driving cars. So you, you kind of yeah. draw a lot of attention to yourself if you're driving a car. Right. So I always kind of found that was a bit kind of weird. Like they were trying to keep a low profile, but uh, if you're driving a car in the quiet sea, you, you're going to be noticed. But if you want to get somewhere fast, like I think you have to lose some of that protection for the convenience of going fast. Well, I think that too, it's like a power play for him. You know, yeah. it's like if I can do what these other guys do, I don't, it's a, just like she said, it's a, you know, representation of he doesn't have that kind of power. He can't even get a car to start, you know. But he wants to. But he wants to. He just doesn't think it through, I think. <laughs> like hey. a lot of next plans, but. <laughs> well, he does have Ryan as his sidekick, you know. What are you looking at? Is this thing going to start or what? It's out of gas. Oh, I did find something, though. Come. Let's get out of here. Okay, let's um, have a discussion about um, tribe styles and tribal markings. Um, one of the very unique aspects of the show. Um, kind of, what's your what's your thoughts when you first like saw these kids in makeup uh, and these tribal markings and these like outrageous outfits? Like, what, what did you what did you first think when you first saw it? I loved it. I want it. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> like. As someone who always is, like, the first in line to get their face painted, like, let's make that an actual thing. Like, I I love it. <laughs> it's very aesthetic. It's It draws the eye. It looks great. But it also has a purpose, too. Oh, so, of course. It does. Like, you know, they're not just wearing this to be fun or whatnot, but they it shows tribal alliance as well, too, which I always liked because... You, you know, if you see someone on the street, you're instantly able to tell friend or foe, tribe, yeah. you know, what, how you need to react to that person, which is nice. And then even, like, looking as a fan later, you start to see, um, you know, uh, groupings will start to have the same marking. Yeah, and Amber and Del. And you can even look at Ryan and Lex and they have that, like, eye drop going on because they're, like, they're together. Yeah. And later on, there's a part where like Lex, Amber, and Dal have the same marking too, which I always thought was cool. During one of my really obsessive years, I uh, I tried writing, drawing all the markings and how they changed over the characters. Who hasn't done that though? <laughs> like, 
they're like subtle implications of the alliances and bonds being formed between these characters. And they sometimes they change daily. Sometimes they last a little longer. You'll see several characters that will share different markings with different people. Um, one really specific moment stands out to me is in season two, Jack and Dal by this point have been wearing the same tribal markings mm -hmm. for quite some time. And uh, when he meet when Jack meets De Ellie, he deliberately starts changing his tribal markings, and it's yeah. like it's a metaphor how his his point of view, what he's interested in, it's starting to change with the arrival of this girl. And I love seeing those little subtle, like there's no accidents with the face markings. They're there. Yeah. No, and mm -hmm. even if you look at the little ones, you have Patsy and Paul who have the red line on their face in episode one, same as Celine. Meanwhile, Chloe doesn't have that. I always got the, uh, the feeling that Chloe was kind of new to their crew. When we first see her, I like the one. I guess it was Amber, Trudy, Trey, and and Jack on the funeral from from suit. The black ones, the black white makeup. That was quite striking, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, the funeral makeup. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say striking. <laughs> what I did find interesting is that they chose to mark Bob the dog as well. Yeah. Like this is our pet. Wasn't there? Wasn't there some colors on Porky? Yeah, there were a lot of colors on Porky, and it's cute. <laughs> in 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 a few episodes, right? Yeah. Were there neon pink? I think there there was. Casey gave him a job. Yeah. <laughs> the girls were very. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. It's been a while. Another thing I like about the face markings is that they tell you a lot about who these characters are, not just who they ally with and what bonds they form, but more specifically, characters who never share markings with anybody. You know, um, they can speak to their individualism, the fact that they like to go their own way, or it can even speak to the fact that they feel isolated or detached from other people. You know, so, you know, Zandra, for example, she doesn't share markings with anyone. Zandra's doing her own thing. She's in her own little bubble of joy and beauty. Nobody's wearing what Zandra's wearing, which speaks to who Zandra is. Or um, Bray, who's another one who rarely ever shares facial markings with anybody. Uh, Trudy, she's another one who is always isolated when it comes to her face makeup, which speaks a lot to how she feels in this world and Tyson, and so I just think that's really cool. Yeah, but with Trudy, you can see that evolve throughout the seasons. As Trudy evolves, she moves away from the individualism. Yeah, um, obviously as the season progresses and get obviously the pentagram marking that kind of denotes the Morats, um, they all kind of go for more individual markings on their faces and stuff, and that's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. During when Lex is sneaking away to see Tyson, or not Tyson, Siva, he takes that off. Which is, to me, really, like, he has enough of a presence to realize, like, I can't be spotted with this. Yeah, Lex is smart enough to do that. So. Jay, on the other hand. <laughs> One of those little Jay. Oh. <laughs> okay, we're gonna have to talk about this, because, yeah. Um, yeah. Because this is a really weird kind of set up yeah um so the, the techno's tribal markings we're gonna have to talk about it see now this is the thing like is it a tattoo they are not tattoos <laughs> or is it a tribal marking are they tattoos 
Now, in the show... <laughs> it's not the book we're talking about. We're talking about the show. In the show, it was set up to be like a, a, a new, usual tribal marking face paint. But obviously, in the books that come later, they've kind of changed them, retconned it into an actual tattoo. Then what happened um, to Siva's? How did hers conveniently disappear? That's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very weird situation. She had it on her head, and then when she decided she didn't want to be a techno anymore, she got rid of it. So it wasn't a tattoo. Okay, here we go. Here's my my theory, my fan theory, and I'm going to stick with it. When Siva did that, or, you know, when they decided to leave the technos and they got rid of their tribal marking, Ram was like, no, that can't be happened. Line up. You're getting this tattooed on you. And then that way, nobody ever left ever again. Would he do? <laughs> He was so mad that he tattooed everyone after I mean, they left. Because he's Jay. Yeah, we're not going where with Jay. I don't know. <laughs> Why does Jay still have the yeah, tattoo? With, with how the much markings? of a germaphobe Rem was, what do you really want? It's not, I mean, it's not him. He could probably just, like, temporary tat it and no one has to know. But for everyone else? No, it's, 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 remember, it's for real. Because um, in the books, oh, he has yeah. to scrape it off. So he's had a tattoo. Yeah. Um, but he would. He would because he got over the germaphobes during the whole Liberty thing. Yeah, just like yeah. he got over dying. Just like he got over dying. Man, you're feisty today. Sorry, I wasn't prepared to talk about the tech now. <laughs> <laughs> I was in my little season one bubble and someone brought up the tech <laughs> I, for what it's worth, I do love technos. Like, I think they're fun. <laughs> well, they are. I think we can just agree that the markings is a bit of inconsistency there. Yes. <laughs> markings or tattoo, yeah, it, it's a bit. But I think they start to tattoo situation. because I think that's just the evolution of how things would work, especially because season one, we're, we're little guys. Not all of us, but some of us are little. And then, you know, if we're going to make these bonds and they're going to be more permanent, we're going to go towards more permanent, you know, forms of identity oh, just reminded me of something um when they, when when all the, the cast were like barcoded yeah that was permanent that that didn't stay that didn't stay no they vanished no. didn't they in later season it wasn't on the yeah they vanished later they vanished on. yeah how they vanished that wasn't permanent so that clearly must have been printed on yeah so which it wasn't is a, a technology thing. that could work <sighs> I'm, I'm sure Amber wasn't having barcodes in the last episode, so they, it must have disappeared. <laughs> I thought we just didn't see it or there was some weird continuity stuff because it's the tribe and we have weird continuity stuff. I think, yeah, I think we just have to assume that it was just face paint and the books just went too far with the tattoos. <laughs> oh, those books went too far with a lot of stuff. Jumping back to season one, um, obviously, since we're talking about the characters, let's go back to... Um, the beginning setup of all the characters being introduced. So let's kick things off with Trudy and Bray. I had the dream again. Mom, Dad, they were there. Here, in the house. Like it was yesterday. Priority will be given to those children exposed to adults already contaminated. Our first scene, we see the two, obviously, um, back in Trudy's home. Um, what's everyone's thoughts about the dynamic between the two? Uh... Um, domestic abuse they're not really like <laughs> together but like no man <laughs> <laughs> she seems desperate for his approval 
she's willing to do whatever Bray tells her to. Like, at first glance, without ignoring everything we learn about these two mm -hmm. people and what their relationship's like, from the first, I think the point is that she trusts him and that he's calling the shots and that he's looking after her. And I do think that's conveyed well. It does be, you know, obviously later on when you learn more about them and their dynamic, you know, issues come up. But just in that first introduction, you can see right away that these are two people who are close, two people who are depending on each other. She trusts him. He's looking after her. It does its job. And it, it does set the stage for a, a lot of what comes next, you know, um, and a lot of the problems that come next. But as an introduction, that's what it's telling us. And that's what's going on. And so I think it's efficient in that. Mm -hmm. It does make him seem like her boyfriend. Yeah, we're supposed to assume what the mall rats assume about him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. I'm trying to think when I when I originally watched it. Yeah. But, um, I never got the feeling that they were a couple. I think even back then. It never set well with me. Like there was something definitely like even the way he like pulls her along. Like there was something that wasn't right. Yeah, I got that feeling when I originally watched it. I thought yeah, there was something not quite right there. Um, like I see it several ways, and none of them actually fit. But it just it didn't sit right ever. Yeah, at some point, the way he uh, he acts towards her is more like sees his little sister, even though she is. Yeah, I am two minds about it because I am I, I okay. Brian Trudy are my OTP. I am biased towards them, so <laughs> I will say that straight Same. up. I'm, you know what you're dealing with. <laughs> So on one hand, I look at them and I just see a protectiveness and almost a possessiveness in the way um, you can be with family members. They are yours to protect. And uh, But at the same time, even though I love the two of them very, very, very much, I can, <laughs> I can look at them and I can see the red flags, you know, um, especially when you learn later about their dynamic and why they're together and all their history. It really does feel like Trudy is not a person so much as something to be bartered, you know. Yeah. Um, she she's Bray's ticket to getting his brother back, you know. And I can see that. You know, she she's something that he has to deal with, and of course, I'm sure he cares about her. He wouldn't want anything bad to happen to her, but she is a responsibility to be traded off when the time is right. And he's just trying to get them both to that finish line. And uh, and you can kind of tell that Trudy is aware of that. And it makes me sad that she has to feel that way at such a vulnerable time in her life to realize that, you know, there's only one reason this person is keeping you around and protecting you. And and yeah, the body language speaks to it. The fact that it's it's Bray's plans and Trudy's desperation to please him and listen to him and follow him. So yeah, I get what you're saying. It just there's things about it that don't sit right, unfortunately. Even though they live happily ever after in my mind, <laughs> not just in your mind. But I think you're right in Bray kind of looking at Trudy as a commodity of like she's carrying her brother's child, and that's almost more important to him than the person carrying her. Yeah, um, Bray uses that to try and get try and pull martin back from zoo um so yeah that doesn't make sense yeah. i think that's kind of what it is is she's pretty much an incubator well she she is and she isn't tim but yeah we'll we'll see more of that later they've yeah definitely got a really 
kind of complex dynamic, I think. Um, Where Liz likes them, I do not. So I like them. I, I totally get why no, why someone wouldn't. I just, you know, I'm not like yeah. that blinded by yeah. my own love. <laughs> no, I, I and I not. think you know that that just talks about like all of us coming together as a group. Everyone has their own favorites. Exactly. So I'm just gonna not talk about this group because no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. Um... That's Trudy and Bray. Uh, so let's move on to our second group, um, Amber and Dal. Amber, look around you. There's no future here. The tribes have got the city. Let them live on tinned food. And what happens when the tinned food runs out? Do you think they're going to leave you alone on your country estate? Yeah, these two have a really interesting in introduction. Um, you see them on rollerblades skating away from the locos. Uh, and they've got an interesting friendship <laughs> going on there, but... I say interesting because we were talking about this earlier. Um, yeah, that their dynamic is and setup is a little strange. Um, what's what's everyone's thoughts about Amber and Dow? Babysitter. Yeah. I was, oh, you took my line. I was going to say that. <laughs> Sorry. We should have done it at the same time. It would have been cute. Um, yeah, she's definitely like his babysitter or being paid to watch him for some reason, whether it's like a tutor or something. Well, I'd never go so far as to call her his babysitter. Um, I do definitely think this is a relationship that was formed outside of their personal control. I don't yeah. think they were drawn to each other on their own. You know, something threw them together and they were just like, oh, you know, they had no choice but to talk to each other. And they decided they liked each other and, you know, kept it up. And of course, then the world ended and it was like, well, okay, you know. But yeah, I do not believe those two, they chose each other yeah. in any way. No. I'm gonna say something that may be controversial. Oh, do I, it! I never, <laughs> I never understood or never got the Amber and Dow friendship. I never thought it was real. I never kind of yeah. bought into it. I, I don't know. I something never clicked there for me. I, I don't know what it is, but it yeah, very much feels like an arranged sort of marriage, and like they're put together by their parents for some reason, and the virus hits, and they just decide people are pairing off it's the convenient pair because we've already spent time together i mean i'm like i'm trying to think back like those moments shared between the two like just that friendship i i, I never got it i never it, there's it. no natural chemistry no. it doesn't feel no. sincere at all and it's it's just possible they didn't click you know they're doing their best yeah but it's like the dialogue's telling us one thing but everything else is telling us something and i think else. i think that's the charm of the tribe too especially in the early episodes where they're all trying to get their footing like it's very apparent and it's cute yeah something was missing in the writing as well i think that's that yeah. friendship between the two just yeah something yeah just something core in that missing and obviously this makes some um, what happens later on in season three like well, the more jarring for me personally because obviously when Dal dies trying to escape from the chosen yeah uh, obviously Amber has a reaction I'm like I don't, why you know, yeah the more wets yeah your friend Morat's died but you weren't really that close oh you're I think she was closer to like any <laughs> other person in the mall like anyone else yes yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean else, I, I Lex and Amber's chemistry that. oh sorry but with Dal well, yeah with, Not with there. Dal it felt like her reaction to him passing later on is more that the last bits he had from her past maybe was gone. She was more yes. mourning like her past than 
the person, yeah, which is really was, sad. He really was the last thing from before it all fell apart. You know, he, he was the last bit of normality that she, she had. And yeah, yeah, that, that makes more that sense. I, think, I mean, granted, again, I do believe they liked each other as people. I don't think they were faking it or anything, but. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's. You're right. They just there's no chemistry. It doesn't feel like they became friends on their own. They never they don't have anything in common. <laughs> they don't have they don't share hobbies. They don't do anything together. Um, they don't want the same things. Uh, I just I, even though I, originally I, they planned to do stuff together to get out of the city. But even well, then, they're not on the same page. Yeah, because no. Ember's like, hey, we got to stay now. Like, I've got an out. She's been looking like she's been. She acts like she's been looking for an excuse yeah, to stay like, the whole time. Yeah. The second she sees and an excuse, like, a second, and she's just like, "I can't go." And it's and like, like, "It's a little silly to make that judgment call. Yeah. <laughs> just take the kid with you." Exactly. Like what? And uh, this is like my kind of, I don't know, daydream thought. But um, I always thought that obviously, if Danny hadn't been introduced in season two, that the backstory was being placed for Amber to have been. The original child of a creator of the virus. I personally thought that was going to what's going to happen. Um, I don't know what you yeah. think about that, but I always thought that storyline was going to be given to Amber. Um, she's been so kind of determined to stay and build something from this ruin. I think, yeah, yeah. If if Beth Adam didn't have wouldn't have left, I think she would have been given that storyline. I think a lot of people think that it would have made sense. Yeah, and I almost feel bad for danny in that regards is because she was kind of passed off as a cheap amber almost i mean we're gonna definitely gonna get into that because there's a lot of obviously substitute characters that were introduced over the show um yes. to replace other characters who left and they did not do them all justice let's just say that um but we'll yeah. come back to that. yeah did you know chloe wandered off i can't stop her what difference does it make we can't run anymore i was gonna give us up then I found this place. I thought they could have a play. One more time before. So next up we have Celine, Patsy, Paul, Chloe and their pet dog, Bob. Um, yeah, that was a very interesting setup. Um, so you have this young girl trying to look after these kids all on her own. Um, presumably she'd been looking after them for quite a while. And you kind of have this last moment where she's in the playground and she's about to kind of give them all up. Um, yeah, what's everyone's thoughts about that grouping? To me, it feels like she's just at the end of her rope. Yeah. She's been doing this for ages. At least that's how it comes across. She's been looking after these kids and she just can't anymore. She cannot, she realizes she cannot provide anything for them anymore. Mm. Not even food or shelter. I think she probably found Patsy and Paul or like in her neighborhood or something and or they knew each other and she knew that they needed a mother figure and she stepped up for that and then they found chloe pretty recently and it just became way too much like suddenly their group had grown and she just didn't know what to do especially with chloe who keeps on running off and doing her own thing bringing own pets you know she just all of a sudden, her good intention went sour because she can't keep every child she finds. Even though she wants to. Yeah, she wants to. And she has a good heart. And she really, really wants to. But she's also just a child herself. 
and didn't really think it through too well. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'll remember when I originally watched it, I always, that line always stuck in my head because I thought, like, you could tell she had come to the end of her kind of. She looks very torn. Yeah. Like, she doesn't quite want to do it, but she knows she has to do it. I always kind of assumed that she knew Patsy and Paul from before because mm-hmm. he's able to communicate with Paul better than others are. So, yeah, from what little we know of the timeline of the show, um, Celine must have been obviously with the group for a while. So, she could have picked up a lot of the lip reading and sign language of Paul. Yes, he could have. Because we know there's been at least like at least six months they've been together, probably. <laughs> yeah, from Jack, who might be a liar. We don't know. He is a liar. Of course he is. And even if he wasn't lying about living on beans for six weeks, doesn't mean he didn't have anything else to eat before that. True that. Mm. I've been living out of a crate of tin beans for the last six weeks. And Come on! Even that's running long. Well, we haven't got much food either. But you can't help me find some. Just because he says six weeks doesn't mean we have six weeks between the, the virus happening and the kids in the city. And obviously we know from Trudy's pregnancy um, where the virus was starting. So that gives us like a rough kind of timeline for when yeah. episode one starts. Episode one starts around eight, at least eight months after the virus started. Yeah. I think it's possible that um, when they first were setting up the timeline, all evidence suggests that the virus did happen very quickly and it hasn't been that long. But um, when, but they also kept it vague on purpose, and that vagary caused problems. And then in season two, they decided to clean up all those plot lines and those storylines, and give it a proper amount of time. And that's why so much seems contradictory in those first few episodes. Um, so, yeah, it does. It makes way more sense for Celine to be taking care of the kids for a shorter amount of time. It makes way more sense for Jack to be living in the mall and living off his tin of beans for so long. You know, it makes way more sense for them to be doing this for less than a couple months than the eight months it probably turned out to be. But we have season two to thank for that. So, Like, just to bring back to where we are in the world right now, um, I've been in lockdown. I don't know about you guys. I don't remember what day it is. So there's a very good possibility that these kids definitely don't know it creates a surrealist environment like you said it's contradictory you know and one point you've got kids celebrating a birthday for somebody very specific date you know for something and other times they act as though they have no idea what it is it's time no longer has the meaning it once did you know and sometimes time matters to them and other times it doesn't you know, it's it's a vague sort of, it, it changes, um, yeah, it's a, it's a concept and it's only as important as any of them make it out to be. And it, it's just the same way they don't really focus on what the name of places are in this world. And they don't actually acknowledge, you know, places that would have existed in the world before the virus. You know, they talk about they, they talk like they don't know what's on the other side of the mountains as if the map of their country has not been made yet, you know? Um, and I think that's part of creating this surreal environment that we're just sort of stuck in. And uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of contradictions like that that don't make sense, but it is just a part of this world. And you either find it charming or it'll drive you crazy. Thanks. Maybe we got it wrong. I mean, 
Are you sure this is a meeting place? Or maybe we got the wrong time. These guys don't wear watches, you know. Quiet. I'm thinking. Yes, Zondra, let the man think. If he can't think, he can't come up with all those brilliant plans. Let's go and have a look at the next character group. Here we have Lex, Ryan, Zandra, and Glenn. And boy, is that an interesting group. Um, <laughs> where do we start with that group of rogues there? Lex and Ryan, obviously, you see, go way, way back. You see that later on with the boot camp in season two. So they've known each other. I also think Zandra and Glenn have known each other for quite some time as well. And... Lex is the leader. Glenn wants to be the leader. There is definite alpha male issues with that because they're both trying to be alpha males. You know, and Ryan is just indebted to Lex for what you see in series two. And it's a very complicated little tribe they've got going on. And I love it. I never felt like Ryan was indebted to Lex. Um I always felt like it's more just Ryan's nature to take care of certain people. And when you look at the flashback between them, it's not like Ryan, I mean, it's not like Lex saves Ryan's life or does anything specific that would make Ryan feel indebted to Lex. If anything, the flashback shows us that Lex is a self-destructive personality who's been let down by the authority in his life. And I feel that's where Ryan's responsibility for Lex comes from. Like, if I don't save this kid, who will? You know, because he'll just destroy himself. Um, I never felt like he was with Lex because, you know, Lex saved him or did anything special for him. Because Lex never does, you know. Um, wrong word. I use the wrong word. In the, it's in the same way that, you know, Celine takes care of the kids. Ryan, he does like having someone to look after, someone who needs care. Someone he that's something he can do. He's not the brightest bulb in the box, you know. Um, I don't think he's stupid by any means, but he is often overlooked. His intelligence is not something that is ever considered by other people. This is something he can do. He can look after people. And if the only way to look after Lex is to give him his muscle and his loyalty, that's what Ryan does. But it's also a very like symbiotic relationship as well because the second Glenn goes off on Ryan Lex is right there to toss with him well of course he can't have anyone you know Lex certainly can't have Glenn putting ideas in Ryan's head <laughs> <laughs> Lex is not like that he doesn't like when Ryan is influenced by other people you know he always has to establish the status quo between them because Lex needs Ryan way more than Ryan needs Lex yeah I agree with that yeah don't get me wrong. I love them both. I'm not saying this like, oh, I don't like Lex. I love Lex. He's great. <laughs> but uh, just as a character, um, I, I, I don't really feel like he's protect he's ever truly protecting Ryan. Um, and, you know, it's, it's he certainly just can't let Glenn speak up and maybe can get Ryan to consider like being on Glenn's side of things. You know, that's why Glenn is the first to get booted out of the group. And the, the only time you actually see Ryan step up for himself, or at least um, do something that Lex doesn't approve of, is when you see him with Zandra. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, his feelings for her are strong enough for him to say, no, this, this is very important to me. <clears throat> Which is why Lex often uses Zandra to get through to Ryan. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, speaking of Zandra, I... She is a fantastic character. I do really like her. I've got a soft spot for Zandra. She's like this 
<laughs> fashion conscious young woman and I'm just she, <laughs> she's got her own style she uh, she i know so i always like she doesn't get enough credit doesn't get enough credit yeah she nails the vapid airhead trope <laughs> beautifully because she's not a vapid no airhead. she's not gives her this she like it's the trope but she gives her a substance yeah. and she's compelling and beautiful and there's a whole very huge hole missing when zandra is gone yeah. from the cast it never quite feels the same and even when they try to replace her no one can no. amy morrison owned that role I, you know and she was fantastic i, I, I will she was fantastic she was i really loved her take on Zandra. Zandra felt like a real person. Yeah. I like the evolution of Zandra, like through the, like we have 52 episodes to get to know this character. And those 52 episodes count when it comes to her through the cycle of her personality. Yeah. She goes through a heck of a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she does. does. That was like acted so well um, by Amy. For such a young one too, like, and she's one of the characters in which you can really see the growth mm -hmm. of her personality. Yeah. She's a very dynamic character. Even if she might be passive in her storylines, there's always... It's, it's like Amy knew exactly who Zandra was the minute she started playing her. Or she created her herself. Mm. You know what I mean? She put, got her claws into that character and yeah. she brought her to life. Even when Zandra is not doing anything, she has a presence. You know, she feels like a person who had history. I may not know what her history is, but oh, I believe yeah. it exists. Yeah. Like, I believe that she didn't just breathe into being when the show started. She was already there living like, in this world. What you just said echoes a line, I think, actually, in season two that Lex had of, like, the presence is missing. Like, she is not there anymore. And I think that it, there is a line somewhat like that somewhere. He said she had so much style in this world. She had so much style. And I know he's not just talking about fashionably. You know what I mean? Zandra is an iconic kind of character. You know, you don't forget someone like that. And uh, she played it well. And I mean, I don't know anybody who didn't like Zandra. <laughs> she grew on me. I didn't like her at first, but she's grown on me, especially now that I've gotten older. I think she's started to on me when i first watched the show she annoyed the hell out of me with her yeah i'm not gonna clean up because my hands might get icky from the soap nah, i was just like you go girl <laughs> i found her to be I, I thought it was interesting that there were sometimes zandra was painted to be more immature than the other girls but i often found that zandra was the most pragmatic of the yeah. females in the mall i feel like she was one of the few people who really accepted the reality of her world even if it seemed like she didn't she seemed to really have a grasp on the world she lived in and what it was going to take to survive in it but she also didn't have any shame about that um she was very honest about herself just reminded me of a line that about who she was. i love from zandra <laughs> when um between her and amber i think i know um, what it is when she says ah oh, i miss television now it's so boring yeah. <laughs> i think that's yeah. such a great line yeah. they're not there anymore i'm wondering what they they're doing <laughs> but but then it goes back to just throw this out there like we as fans, the show has ended, and yet there are people on the Facebook who are like, what's going to happen next? 
just we're all gone yeah like come on guys like don't don't even pretend. nothing's gonna happen they weren't real don't pretend you don't <laughs> think about it okay where are they now what's going on i think that's why we, why we continue to write role plays and fan fiction. exactly like we're all that she we're needs more drugs. credit i have a soap guy i'm not gonna lie i get my soap from a guy i have special soap yeah. I love that. It's my special soap. I know. And every time I go to buy soap, I think about that line and how much I hate it. I also love the fact that she's the only one who had soap. Right? But that shows her priorities. Like, she'd have soap, she'd have shampoo. She, yeah. <laughs> and every uh, shade of lipstick you could possibly ever get. Except for that one that Lex had to go out and get Electric Rouge. Mm-hmm. Yes, Electric Rouge. But, like, the fact that Lex knew that. That's quite Yeah. He people don't give Lex no. credit. He's he has a plot. Like, I mean, he's also the one who names the tribe. You know, like he might not always be there, but he's got a plan. I think that's why I always liked uh Amber and Lex's dynamic, because Amber is one of the few people who recognized how much potential Lex had. Uh-huh. If he could just, if she just wanted to direct his energies in a productive way, you know, everybody else tends to write him off. Yeah. They don't want to deal with him. And it always causes problems if you try to look at all that potential, all that energy. Yeah. You know, it needs to go somewhere. And she was one of the few people who was always trying to direct it positively. You know, she recognized right away he has great qualities that we need for this group to succeed. She didn't try to throw Lex under a rug. She just like, how do I direct yeah. you? Yeah, that's, what, that's one of the things I liked about Amber. How she just would like just, work with people as much as she could, like rather than just like, okay, yeah, <laughs> I can't do. I'm also you. the world's biggest Ambex fan, so keep talking. I love it. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, because I, I agree with you. I do. Lex has a great amount of he's it's why i could never hate him even though lex does horrendous things you know i can't hate a character who is so complex and compelling as him when has so much potential and we get to see all these amazing shades Mm -hmm. of his character you know and uh he's not you he's not simple to define there's a lot going on in there and my favorite things about lex is who he is in the dark and um he the heroic side of him that yeah. some will peek out when you least expect him to ever exactly. be that person. And I think those you are know? the moments that I mostly like the most is like when that little peak of his little like heart of gold comes out, which are very few and far between. But when they do, I'm just like, oh, they do exist, and they don't erase the terrible things he does. No. But it's a reality of humanity. We all can be yeah. great. We all can be terrible. Like, Lex is my absolute favorite character, and there are things that, as a person, I cannot condone that he did. And but yet, I still love him. So, like, I know in real life, as a person, oh. I would have nothing to do with Lex, you know. <laughs> but as a writer and as a character lover, oh, he's a, he's a dream come true. <laughs> and speaking of terrible characters doing terrible things, that leads us nicely onto Zoot and Ebony. Why do you want to be a locust? You guys are the best outfit around. You cut it. You really... What? Really what? Where to start? Um, let's, let's start with Zoot, uh, the leader of the Locos. What, eight episodes? Um, eight episodes. Eight. I desperately wanted to see more. That a lot of wasted potential. So much. See, 
I know. I go back and forth. Like, yes, it was wasted. Like, he's got eight episodes. But once again, he made those eight episodes. And we, you know, he comes back and the mention of Zoot in the city strikes such fear. Like, oh, no, Zoot could be coming back when he comes back or somewhat comes back in five. Like, it shows you that he did rule the city for quite some time. Yes. Because if it had just been a couple of, like, two or three weeks of him terrorizing the city, and like people wouldn't remember him that way. You know, looking at watching the show the first go-round, like, we see Zoot for eight episodes, and then we don't hear about him for a while, and he comes back up again, and you hear that name, and you're like, oh, no. Like... We didn't see a lot about him, but he's a bad dude. And now I'm instantly afraid for these people because Zoot's back. I know. I just, here you have this iconic villain. His tribe style is fantastic. You've got the whole police cars, you've got the locos, all the rollerblades, and just only eight episodes. Um, you didn't really get to fully see and explore. Yeah, I definitely think his death was short sighted. I, I definitely think more should have been done with him. Zoot is an exercise in the importance of legend and memory. Because yeah. even in those eight episodes, I don't even think they realized how important he would become. He's not featured very clearly in those eight episodes. We're only getting snippets of him. And, and then he dies because clearly he wasn't meant to be important. He was always meant to die and be remembered. But as you can see what happens when you start to remember Zoot, he becomes bigger and grander than he ever was when he lived. You know, I mean, it's not like he ever fought the mall rats. It's not like he ever attacked the mall. And yet you would think that the way his name is spoken, the reverence, this is all stuff that comes from memory. This is what the kids remember of him. That's the impression he was able to leave upon them. And the show got smart and capitalized upon that because I can honestly think of villains from season one who were actually more threatening <laughs> to our heroes than Zoot ever was that nobody ever thinks about, nobody ever talks about. I do. Because yeah, I do. <laughs> they didn't lose that much. Yeah, sorry. That's another one of my favorites. I, I have my favorites, but I'm just, I'm saying like, you know, Zoot is the most iconic character from the show. And he clearly wasn't meant to be. It's just what happened. And they were smart to capitalize on it. And you have, I, I'm, I'm just going to jump ahead, but I'm not going to dwell on it. There's this moment where Bray is talking to Amber about remembering his brother. And, you know, she's like, are you okay? And he's like, it's just hitting me that he's never going to come back. And he's the only one who remembers the boy he was. And this, this this legend of his brother as Zoot is all that's left of him, you know, and it's not mm. even the real person that existed. And we'll never really know the real person that existed. Yeah. And that's amazing. That is amazing and kind of terrifying because Martin has no say in how he was remembered. Think about that. You know what I mean? He has no say in the things that are done in his name, the things that are done to his daughter, the mother of his child. He's gone, you know, but these are the things people are doing in his name. That's that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you get, you get what you're saying about the, his legend. I just, I just don't think the show should have gotten rid of him that early on. I, I just think I, I still think he should have died in season one, but yeah, just, just not, not that, early, yeah. that early in season yeah. one. I think there's a lot more dynamics that he could have had. Well, I agree. That's why I, I don't think they realized how important he would be. And that's why they were just like, ah, 
I mean, his like his whole his whole myth and legend was obviously played up with the ch- chosen in season two and three. Yeah. Um, but then I mean, it got to the point where it was stretched out a bit too much because when obviously when you get the technos were introduced, see that that went that was stupid. They should not have had anything to do with suit. <laughs> no, it didn't make sense. But I think that when the technos started falling in with the zoot, it wasn't a like it was because that was what the city was afraid of. You know, they, yeah, but that's milk. That was milking it at that point. Yeah. They were really milking the legend of Zoot by but then. But that was that's what they needed to secure their I power. Mean, like, he hadn't been around for yeah. what years now. Like, that, yeah, yeah, he, he hadn't been. But, but it's, it's you think about it. The chosen I mean, were scarier than Zoot. Yeah. You know, like the chosen. The chosen did much way more damage than Zoot ever could have dreamed in his silliest, dizziest night day daydreams. I just. Ah, I'm sorry. This as soon as I see Mega and Ram decide to pull up the Zoot thing, I'm just I, like, I still think that's more Java than yeah. Ram. And I mean, Mega let's let's talk about that because like, who would create an AI program with the icon of Zoot? Like, why? How? But, like, Java. I, I need I, to stay out of this conversation. So, but no, in in my that made no sense. In in my opinion. It was just Java getting back at her sister. See, I always looked at it as, you know, the the rough and tumble bad guy. The thing that people do things are in the name of Zoot. And if you need someone to try and control the city, you're going to use Zoot. Because, yes, the Chosen were badder, but everything they did, they did in the name of Zoot. That presents other questions like how much... Of the city, did the technos know about before they invaded? And I'm sure they looked like, or they could have heard like kiddos say things. In simple reality, the technos have Java and Siva amongst them. When the virus hit and everything with Zoot started, Java and Siva, they would have known of him. Um, I mean, he was their sister's classmate, and we later hear tiny little remarks about them having been with the with the locos in the beginning yeah. mm-hmm. in the very beginning and getting driven away thanks to ebony i'm will, i'm willing to agree that it was probably java's idea you know and she's the one who brought it to mega like hey you want to you want to bring out the crazies in this group i know exactly how to do it yeah. but it just makes me not like java more because no, no, that is no. a really twisted thing to do. If she knew about Zoot, she knew what Zoot did to her sister. And we know Zoot did some messed up things yeah. to Ebony. And that is, I don't care how much you hate your sibling, that is messed up. I mean, their whole <laughs> dynamic is messed up. So. Oh my goodness, that is so twisted. I'm, I'm just like, girl, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm happy what happened to you. That's all I can say. <laughs> Yeah, it it does make me wonder what happened to Java and Siva in, well, pre-tribe, you know, because w- what happened to them? What did Ebony do to make them hate her that much? It was always just sibling rivalry. Um, there was a little bit in the episode, wasn't it? Um, it just said that um, Ebony betrayed them and kicked them out of the locos. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's something that could have been explored a bit more. That, that's that's more than yeah. sibling rivalry. I mean, I've wanted to beat up my brothers. I've never actively wanted to end their lives. Um, so obviously, speaking of Ebony, uh, can we just say how fantastic it was that Raymond Thompson actually saw how incredible she was in the auditions? Because um, 
obviously we all know yeah. that yeah. she originally auditioned for Celine, the role of Celine. Um, and you can see it on the website now, but um, even watching that audition back, you can just tell how much like energy that Meryl Cassie has. And he kind of saw that and created this whole character specifically for her. And that was incredible because Ebony is a fantastic character that you just love to hate. Mm-hmm. And I almost wonder, going back to like killing off Zoot so early, if that was to kind of lay the path for Meryl Cassie to shine. Because as like Zoot's woman, she wouldn't necessarily have that opportunity. I think Ray later stated that they always meant to kill off Zoot. Yeah, he's always said that. Well, yeah, but so early. That's that's the question, yeah. He's always said he was going to be killed, but I think if Meryl Cassie hadn't been there, I think he could have lasted longer, I think. Yeah, and that's what I'm thinking too. It's like, yes, we always meant to kill him, but who kills off your main bad guy eight episodes into a show? And Meryl herself doesn't speak until like, what, episode nine? But she still has such power just being there. Oh yeah, in, ep- in episode one, she's got one line, which is like, like, what? Really what? To Lex? And it's just such a, like... Oh yeah, she does. Yeah. Striking line as she looks at him. It's like, she, her presence is just fantastic. Um, speaking of Zoot and Ebony, um, they obviously led the Locos. Um, and what we see from episode one is their big battle with the rival tribe, uh, the Demon Dogs. What's everyone's thoughts about um, these two big tribes fighting out in the city? I love their look. I love their intro. I love the cinematic nature of the shot when we first see them. And I like the theme of predation. I just think they look amazing. I don't know who these people are, but I, I want to cosplay as them. <laughs> and I also, <laughs> I also think they're kind of really cool in their egalitarian views on fights. Because they're, you got the main leaders who are males, and they each got a lady by their side. And there's no question that the ladies are jumping into the fight. I just like that. I like the fact that they're tribes. There's no sexism there. Like everyone's expected to pull out a bow staff and fight. And <laughs> I'm sorry. I just find that enjoyable. Yeah, I just I wish we kind of saw more. And I know that it's not the purpose of the show is to show like tribes going at each other, but it was there were hard stakes and I wish we saw that interaction. Even though that's not the point of the show. But it would have been nice. It does make the scenes where you do get some tribal warfare a lot more enjoyable because they're so few and far between. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially when you realize it's these kids who are doing the stunts and it's pretty freaking awesome. <laughs> yeah. I don't even care if this, some of the fights are a little cheesy. I don't care. Yeah. I love it because we don't get that much of it. No. And so it's, it's a lot of fun to actually see it when it happens. I wish we, because like, yes, you know, the Locos are the big bad tribe and the Demon Dogs want to take over their turf. But like, how does that fall in with like the other tribes too? Like, what is the hierarchy of the tribes? Kind of wish we saw more of it. Yeah, because you clearly have the Locos who everyone's scared of. Demon Dogs have set anyone in a panic as well. Tribe, tribe Circus deserves way more credit. I love Tribe Circus. That's the tribe I'm afraid yeah. of. Like, Demon Dogs, Locos, they don't scare me. They're just a bunch of bully boys running around. You know, I don't care. They're easy to hide from, but Tribe Circus is terrible. They're freaky. <laughs> They're great. They're the best. I, I they are the best. If, if there was one group I would have liked to see some more tribal warfare yeah. from, 
It is tribe circus. I want to know what's going on with those guys. I think the Tribe Circus fight is my favorite fight. Oh, yeah. Just like, <laughs> even with the acrobatics, though, like, that is some intense stuff. Ah. I, oh, yeah. Can't wait till we get to that. It's kind of weird because, yeah, Tribe Circus had such a presence. Um, but then you have the Demon Dog. They were kind of reduced throughout the series until they just basically vanished. Um, yeah. Wh- why do you think that was? But we are given enough information to recognize that there is a world outside the mall. And even though it would have been great to see more of that world, um, it wasn't fully rendered, I guess you'd say. It's kind of like, you know, if you're playing a video game and you try to go further than you're supposed to in the stage, it doesn't basically exist past there because they haven't, you know. um, So I always got that feeling about the world outside. Uh, They have all the makings for a very, very fascinating world. But you're never really allowed to see too much of it. Um, but at least it does keep moving. That is a good thing. Like, even though we may not know the specifics of what's going on with the tribal warfare and how the tribes are working together and how they're fighting, every time we revisit these tribes, every time we're reintroduced to them, something has been happening. They have been progressing outside of the mall, which I do like because it adds a dynamic. A, a dynamic uh, energy to the world that they live in. So even when the mall rats are holed up in the mall doing their thing, the world is still spinning outside around them and things are happening. So I like that. You know, one of the things I always, I always felt a bit sad about is that you s- at some point you do see locos, demon dogs, and then suddenly they throw in people like the jackals, but they get so f- very few scenes. Well, season two has a sudden hard job because the uh, their world suddenly, we are now outside of the mall. Season one has the advantage where we're just in the mall. Yeah, so we don't yeah. have to focus much on what's happening outside. We just get little tidbits. We don't really need to know who any of these tribes are. We just need to know they exist. But in season two, when our characters now have to extend their society project, if you will, into the world, Mm -hmm. suddenly we have to know who all these people are and all these tribes are coming at you hard and fast. And there's not a lot of focus on them. You know, they have to establish that they're there and that they might be a problem, but that's it. You know, we can't uh, we can't really spend a lot of time with them. And it gets a little overwhelming because. We never get to really explore any of them. And then some of them just disappear forever. Yeah, Yeah, and some suddenly return. Like Billy Boy, who... First you think he dies in season two, and then he appears back in season four as a candidate. Do not get me started! (laughs) (laughs) I I look at that every time. I'm not going to go into it, but when I look at it, I'm like, okay, writers, did you not realize that you killed off these characters two seasons (laughs) ago? They are not here that you cannot. But I will give them credit for this. Maybe, just maybe, uh, that was done on purpose. Ram did mention that he put those candidates in there so that Celine would win. So it's very possible that, yes, he used the faces of people who no longer existed. I don't know how he got the faces. Don't ask me anything about what makes sense about the technos, but he got the faces and he put them <laughs> in there. Them. <laughs> Digital renders. So, I, yeah, you know. I always wondered if they did it on purpose to make us to give us a sense of oh who knows maybe the tribe leaders are still alive yeah maybe danny could come back at that point the use of ambiguity starts being used as a crutch 
you know, it's like we don't want to be hard and fast about anything anymore. So we leave everything up in the air. And that does damage the storytelling. Sometimes you just got to own your story and they kind of stop at that point. They know, you know, there's no, it. like you said, they, oh, maybe they are alive. We're never really actually going to conclude this. This isn't actually going anywhere. There aren't any actual answers. Speaking of obviously um, tribal wars and fights, uh, we have to address the elephant in the room. Um, the fact that the tribe has no real weapons or firearms. What did you think about that setup when you originally watched the show or looking back at it now? Do you think um, them not having any like firearms or guns hindered the show in any way? Or do you think the fact that they found creative outlets to show the fighting in the wars was like a better use? I think it helped to make believe that this tribe was some that this city was somewhere in Europe. Mm-hmm. I think that that was one of the things they might have done on purpose because let's face it it's especially at that time it's not like you could get a gun anywhere easily as a child. People don't keep guns in their homes over here. I liked the creative aspect of it and like as a kid watching the show the first time I honestly did not realize that there a gun shown at all um and i just i don't know if that just speaks to the time of it being 90s or what but it's only been in the last years that i've been like oh yeah there were no weapons so but i i don't think kids would have necessarily gone first thing for the firearm i yeah i i noticed it straight away it's just like because you, you have all the other media around at the time like you, you knew that it was it was missing like there was no, there was no references. There was no like addressing, addressing of it. It was just like completely forgotten. I was never bothered by the lack of guns per se, um, because well, I mean that's not the only weapon out there. Um, I I found the lack of that very easy to believe for this world. You know what I mean? Whatever the excuse might be, I I found it very believable that these kids didn't have access to it. You know that was fine. Uh, for me, I, the weaponry that always bothered me was just the lack of most weaponry. I I did find it strange that it was so rare for these kids to find other ways to arm themselves, Mm. um, you know, non-lethal ways to arm themselves. I thought that was strange. But again, I came into the the show as an adult and, you know, I, I had already had children. So I was looking at it like, I've seen kids, they're really resourceful. And when it comes to protecting themselves, I did think it was strange that they very rarely ever carried even the most simplistic forms of yeah. uh, defense on them. So it was, I wasn't bothered by guns, but I would think about other things and go, why don't you have anything to protect yourself? Um, but I think it goes in line with what we had said before uh, about taking out any adult uh, solutions and making this really just from a child's point of view. Every problem they come up against, they solve it They don't use any adult solutions. They don't use alarms. They don't use uh, adult defense mechanisms. They they don't buy a water filter. You know what I mean? Like they easily could just get a Brita water filter or something. And so they have to create their own. They have to come up with their own ways to solve these problems. So I think that just might have been part of it. I also wonder just like behind the scenes sort of thing, because the tribe dealt with so many more adult situations, if maybe having a firearm or a gun or a weapon or any of that would have tipped the sensors into a different category that 
production didn't quite want to go in. No, you're right. And as soon as you open the can of worms, you are in the can. You yeah. can't get out of it. You can't introduce certain lethal weaponry and then not have it. Yeah. it you've already explained that it's there. So now why wouldn't the kids use it at any given time? Better just to just never I, bring I it up. I agree that the, the show wouldn't be the show if it had guns or weapons. It just completely goes against the ethos of the show. But I would have just liked a, a little line, a little explanation for why this world didn't have it. It just, was it in the books where they melted them down, or am I making that up? It, it wasn't in a book. But it was in a fan fiction that I'm sure we've both read. Yeah. It had to be in a book or yeah. fan fiction. And obviously, speaking of books, um, in the novelization of Series One by Harry Duffing, um, you have like the locos uh, going around in a tank. Um, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> like, it's like my favorite. Pretty part. insane, but like they were. You've got that, and then um, fast forward to season four, and you've got like you suddenly have these laser weapons with sappers and airplanes and all kinds of things. It's just, uh, yeah, like smoke bombs and sound waves, and <laughs> it's like once season one had that whole rape storyline with Zandra and everything, and so when you bring in the um, the laser guns and those other weapons, like don't have the meat of those other intense storyline so now we can show weapons because we're not going to get knocked too much by the censors so it's almost like they traded substance for style yeah and like you know it's it's easier to sell like if you're going to have kids drinking and alcohol abuse you might not be able to show a weapon because now it's getting into intense stuff we'll, we'll definitely come back to that because um obviously season four and five um like the themes used versus season one, uh, a lot was kind of downplayed yes. compared to the original series. Um, and yeah, we'll go into more detail about that another <laughs> That's time. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I, can, I can see what you That's mean. What yeah, I... Definitely coming to me. Yeah. See yourselves. You won't find a better place to crash than this. It's so big and empty. I'm tired. Me too. It's getting dark. What are we going to do about sleeping? I've got a blanket. The younger ones can have that. The rest of us will just have to make do. Sounds good, but uh, I can go on better. And just to finish off the episode, the more. Uh, what's everyone's thoughts on the set? Um, were you quite impressed by the more? Um, I know we were talking about before how it didn't quite fit with your your own ideas of what a more was like, um, but. What's your original impressions when you first saw them all? It's beautiful. My original, yeah. yeah. My, my original thought was, okay, this is obviously a shopping mall, mm -hmm. but that's because we don't have those mega malls over here, especially not back then. It fitted with the scale of which I viewed the cities as a child that age back then. I, I was just going to say, I, I. I was an adult, so I saw it, and I was able to put two and two together. It was a mall. But I, I guarantee that if I had been a child, I wouldn't have had any idea what it was. <laughs> because I didn't grow up in the city, and I hadn't traveled, so I wouldn't have been able to recognize it. Um, but I still think it is probably one of my favorite sets I've ever seen. I just want to walk on that. It, it's so beautiful. I, I, I think they did a great job with that. It, it looks like a real place that you'd want to explore and live in looking back like as a filmmaker i'm always impressed when they build sets like that like that is one cohesive set on a soundstage which 
gives it its own. Um, and there are a few shows that have done that, and it does make the space a character. In the closest city here, we have a shopping mall which has almost the same size. And since then, every time we went there, I was like, oh, if there was a virus, I could take that one as a home. I was totally impressed about the idea and uh, having a shopping mall as a, as a home. Yeah, I think that that's, it helped with, at least to me, being in Europe. It made me instantly believe it could be any city nearby. I love how intricate the mall is, that they're able to, um, they really get so many shots you know, and it never feels like they're always in the same place. Like there's just so many great creative shots they were able to get for scenes that gave them so much to work with. It really felt like a place that these kids had to imbibe and could make their own and really live in. And um, so I, I love, I love seeing a new corner of the mall, yeah. you know, in a shot, in a, you know, a scene that you're like, where are they? Like, yes. <laughs> it's really cool mapping out yeah. the mall from those shots. Okay, like there are a few shots in the mall where you can see like CDs or media, like oh, yeah. books, I think even. And like, I just remember at one point, the original Savage Garden is like full on, like right there. And like, <laughs> I was obsessed with Savage Garden at that time. So it was like, oh, I have that CD, I know. And so the fact that like the characters that I love could be listening to this music that I'm listening to, like really like just melted my heart for me it was it was the books mo mostly at some point in a later season you have a specific miffy book and i was like oh my god i have that yeah <laughs> i was reading that to kids of that age group at that at the time <laughs> i was like it's it makes I actually so much had, sense i had a bunch of props that had were in the uh antique shop yeah <laughs> So it was pretty cool to see. Oh my gosh, I own that thing. Oh yeah. In fact, I think there's only one thing I ever had a problem with with the mall and I still have it and it's it's a dumb thing, but I've never been able to buy the concept of their food court ever. Um even even as a kid, I would have looked at that cafe and said, "This is a health and safety hazard. I don't oh, yeah. know who would eat in here." Oh yes. <laughs> it's just Terrible. And it will always stay with me every time because I've, I've tried to build them all a few times and the Sims and stuff because I'm interested in architecture. And um, every time I'm just like, this would not fly. No. <laughs> like, we need to change this. But I also like as someone who's worked in malls, I've also appreciated like the fact that they have that back tunnel area. That is a very real mall thing. So Yeah. Though I wonder, does anybody else have an entrance to the sewers in their mall? Yes. Yes. Yes, they do. It's a very, yeah. Really? They do have entrance. Wow. Yeah. Like, I thought there would be a basement, a sub-level no, first. So and most malls, like uh, around here at least, they have those back tunnelways. So it's not quite obvious. But like you go through a door and you're in the tunnels and then you go through another door and you're in the sewer type area. Wow. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. amazing. I've been That's through amazing. there. That's amazing. Wow. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love that entrance. It never bothered me. I didn't care that the sewer was directly yeah. under the mall. But <laughs> I just think that set looks amazing anyway. I'm like, what a creative way for them to get in and out of this place. I love it. It looks great. Why are you doing this? Doing what? Helping us. We could be demon dogs for all you know. 
You guys. Maybe not. All the same, you didn't have to let us in here. So what's everyone's uh, final thoughts about episode one? Do you think it was a good introduction to the world of the tribe? Or do you think it should have been done some things a bit differently? Overall, I thought it was good. Like, you don't get all of the answers up front. Like, you are very much a part of the world and you kind of are along for the ride. It's a great introduction. I, I fell in love from the moment I watched it. I knew, I don't know what this is about. I don't know where this is going, but I got to find out. Yeah. I got to follow these kids. I want to know what's going to happen to them. I was already enamored with the world. Definitely. Yeah. It's just fr from the moment you see that episode, you're wondering what's going to happen next. And, and some of the moments in it, like, for instance, the fact that Trudy and Bray are talking about going back into the city um, and that it'll, if they leave at that time, they might reach the city by nightfall. It gives you a, a bit of a scale of how big this city must mm -hmm. be. Absolutely. And how many dangers there could be throughout that city. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely excited me when I first saw it. Um, it left me wanting more, which is obviously what it needs to do. So, Yeah. <laughs> it's timeless and charming. I mean, come on, we're talking about it. It's been 20 yeah, years. It, it holds up. It. it holds up. It did its job. I, mean, I still find things that I haven't caught in my, you know, hundreds of times watching it. Which I think is still really yeah. cool. Like I love that. I love that moment where you're like, oh my gosh, how did I pick up on that? Oh, the other day, like, it w it's been a while now, but I had a pause. I, I can't even remember what I saw, but I saw something and I paused it and I like took a moment. I was like, how did I not catch on to that? <laughs> my dumbest moment of something I didn't catch on to for many, many years. And it has a lot to do with the accent, the pronunciation. But um, when they went to the tribal gathering and they come back and they're all kind of depressed because it didn't go well, Trudy asks, did anyone win the goldfish? And I was like, what the frick is she talking yeah. about? Like, I didn't understand what she was referring to for years and years. I'm, I'm not kidding. It took me a decade to realize what she was saying. <laughs> I was at the carnival with my children and my daughter wanted a goldfish. And suddenly it just hit me. It's just the way she says the line that my American ear heard goldfish as like a thing, like a separate thing yeah. and not one word goldfish. And I was like, oh my God, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. <laughs> like, of course, that's what she's saying. Did it, I guess nobody won the goldfish. Like, I do remember that. Oh one. my God. <laughs> 10 years, guys, 10 years. <laughs> uh, and so to close... Uh, let's have a look at our favorite quotes from the episode. I'll start things off. So yeah, my favorite quote from the episode is definitely Jack's introduction. It, it's a fantastic moment. <laughs> it just shows you how cocky he is, how intelligent he is. And it's, it's just a fantastic moment that I really love. And it always stood out for me. It's one of the best introductions of a character. One, two, three, four, five. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So what happens now? I think you'll find that, that was a fairly empty threat. You didn't quite think it through, did you? Not to worry. Hi, oh, I'm Jack, and I think you've got something to say to me. Like what? Well, in my day it was thanks, but... Uh, 
Times are changing. I just love his happiness yeah. at finally being able to say that line <laughs> that he's probably been rehearsing a really, really long time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's been waiting for his day to do that. That's probably my favorite as well. That, that's the equivalent. That's the equivalent of a slow mo walk in a movie. Oh yeah. <laughs> yep. Your trench coat waving behind you in the breeze, or whatever. <laughs> he finally got it. I'm so happy for him in that moment. One of the other quotes that really stuck with me from this episode, though, was one of Dell's with a, you know the rule, Amber, look after number one. What's she doing out there on her own? She's a stray. Are we talking about the girl or the cat? You know the rule, Amber. Look after number one. Yeah, well, there's always an exception to the rule. It's just such. It captures what they're about. That he thinks, yeah, we need to look after ourselves first. And he instantly responds with, no, we can't. There are other people to concern. Rules are meant to be broken. Yeah, that's a really great line. I like that. There's one quote I liked that I feel just defines what their world is like and says a lot about the characters in question. It's between Trudy and Bray when he's telling her they have to go back into the city. They have to try and make it make it into the city because, you know, the roosters are coming into the territory. The suburbs are no longer safe. And she doesn't want to go back. You know, she's talking about all the terrible tribes are there. She's terrified. And he's saying, we got to try and get through to get to a safe place. And, and she's just like, there is no safe place, you know? Come on. We better go. The roosters are moving in. We're not safe here. We're not safe anywhere. In Sector 10, we may have a chance, Trudy. I heard there were only strays and nomads. We've got to get through. I don't want to go back there. Locos. We've got to at least try. There isn't much time. And it, it always struck me what that must feel like, that insecurity of just, you may have a roof over your head, you know, even, but there's no, there's no security whatsoever for them and what it must be like to have to live in that kind of environment and constant fear every moment that anything could happen to you because there's nothing to stop it from happening to you. So I always like that one. Yeah, that's a good one as well. Yeah. And one of my favorite is at the end of the episode as Amber brings the kids back to bed and Chloe sa says she wants to go home and Amber tells her that this is the new home. What's wrong? She can't find her teddy. I want to go home. I know. It's all right. This is your home. For now, at least. That really caught me. I want to go home. Yeah. And every week, we're going to try and do Lex's zinger of the week. His quotes or sayings that stood out the most. All right. So everyone's probably going to hate me because you guys all think <laughs> I'm going to pick out locos or scandalous line but i'm not so yes that is the line that gets quoted and yes it's here and it's a great line but there's a part where um the kids are on the playground and celine and dal and amber have showed up and uh lex is like listen like i own this city you need to give us our food and amber stands up to him and he's She's like, and who are you? And Lex just says, oh, no, you've never heard of us. <laughs> and then they get cut off because the locos are running through. Who are you? 
I don't recognize your tribe. Oh, tell me you've never heard of us. And I've just always wanted to hear, like, what would he, like, if he makes up a tribe name, they're instantly going to know that they're nothing. So I would have loved to hear, like, it doesn't matter, but I want him to finish that line. Like, what does this group call themselves? It's just always my little, I want to know that. I'm just trying to think of what they would have yeah. called themselves now. It, it, it brings up a now, point. What would their name be? And I think that's going to be stuck <laughs> in everyone's head. See? So if anyone has any suggestions, we'd love to hear them. <laughs> I have to say, I, I'm a bit surprised. I thought for sure you would have gone for Lex's war zone actual line. The sick is a war zone. The whole city is a war zone in case you hadn't noticed. Oh, yeah, that was a good one, too. There are too many good lines. But I just, I want to know what he wants. Like, what was he going to say? <laughs> Thank you for listening to our special episode one edition of Conversations on Eagle Mountain. I was your host, Lance. And joining me today were Liz, Kata, Hill, and Sabine. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast. If you have any insights into what we've said, or if there's something that you spotted in an episode yourself, do get in touch, and we hope to feature it in a future The S from Tribe World section. So that's it for now. Make sure to rewatch episode two of season one and listen in to our next podcast. See you then. Okay. Bye. 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 Bye.